Well, are you excited? It's a fair buzz to be here together. Praise God for it. It's a pretty unique opportunity. We're in for, and I'm choosing my words deliberately and carefully here, we're in for a fantastic and exciting, a heartwarming, a mind-transforming, a life-enriching five days. As I said before, ANCON, we like to say, under the power of God, is the conference that will change your life. Not because of any single person who is here, least of all me, or Steve who will speak in the mornings. The reason these five days are so full of potential is because we're going to listen to the one true God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks through his word. And when God speaks, friends, well, when God spoke, the universe came into being. When God speaks, mysteries are revealed. The eyes of our hearts are opened afresh and life is given when God speaks. His his words are food for our soul. Jesus said, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what we've got this week is a feast of the word of God. We have, I worked out, 100 hours together. A hundred hours of power. So exciting. The potential to change our lives. So are you ready? That was lame right? That was so... Are you ready? All right. I want to know, are you ready to engage your God-given brain with his God-given word and listen and ask hard questions so that you might get to know him and be changed by him. Are you ready? Well, let me lead us in prayer then. Father in heaven, we are full of expectation and full of longing to hear you speak this week. As you've promised, may your word not return to you empty this week or even this hour, but in the power of your spirit, may it accomplish your purpose in our lives. Teach us, Father, rebuke us, correct us, train us, comfort and encourage us so that we might know you more. In Jesus' name and the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, the outline is there on page four of your book. Now, my Ancon top tip number one. There may be a whole series of these. I don't know. I haven't got past one. You might have other suggestions you want to bring to me. My Ancon top tip number one is this. Don't freak out, especially about the size of the outlines. Right? If You can help me out here. Float like a butterfly. Who said that? Ah, you're a poet. You didn't know it. Did you like that? What we're going to do this week is we are going to, we are going to dance. Not me, but we are going to dance through these outlines, like Muhammad Ali. And then every now and then, pow, we are going to get stuck into particular points. The detail is all there in the outlines as a permanent resource for you. But in these sessions, I'm not necessarily going to look at everything in the outline. Sometimes I'm just going to pass very quickly over stuff as a way of trying to get the breadth of what God has to say on a particular topic. But then sometimes we'll bed down and really do some meaty, exegetical work trying to pull apart the Bible text. And sometimes I'm just going to not even talk about what's on the page. That's okay, right? It's all there for you. Don't freak out if you're a detailed person, very conchy, you know, you've just finished your exams and your desk is completely clear, it's all in nice little folders. Don't freak out, okay? It's all right. You can go away and read it, you're smart. All right, don't freak out. Now, on the outline, you'll see my first somewhat obtuse heading. Drums, iPhone apps and Kabbalah bracelets. Now, my point, which granted may not be terribly clear, is this. 
Spirituality is in. Spirituality is in. About eight weeks ago, I was putting together the outlines for these talks. I was thinking about this point, how spirituality these days is almost hip. It's almost sort of cool again. And I was thinking, well, what could I compare it to? What else is cool? I, and I thought, well, Rowan, what hope have you got to work that out? Like, I'm not a cool person, right? I drive a Tarago. Not a cool car. <laughs> and pretty much whatever scene I'm in, it's not cool. So I thought, well, I'll have to ask somebody else. So I asked somebody who I thought would know cool. Now that's a bit dangerous, right? Because I'm not cool. And then I suddenly thought, well, maybe it takes cool to know cool. <laughs> but I had to do something. So I asked somebody, and I thought, let me ask a cool person. So I asked Ludo. <laughs> Ludo, where are you, Ludo? Ludo's over there, my man. Ludo, I said, this is a true story. Ludo, I said, I need two hip and trendy things. Ludo said, I'm on it. <laughs> and Ludo went to work. This is true, isn't it? L Ludo went to work, and this is what he came up with. He came up with a list of Ludo's cool things. <laughs> Ludo will never, ever speak to me again. <laughs> First of all, said Ludo, microeconomics is cool. <laughs> Did we get microeconomics? Now, like you, I, that was my reaction, right? I just thought, really, microeconomics? That sounded a bit far-fetched to me. Uh, but second, said Ludo, drums are cool. Now, you should know Ludo is a drummer. And, but he tells me this has not in any way influenced his opinion on the matter. <laughs> Drumming apparently is objectively cool. And I pushed him a little bit on it, and I said, are you sure, Ludo, that drumming is cool? And then he said, everybody wants to be a drummer. <laughs> and then I remembered this guy. <laughs> Do you remember this guy? Can you hear that? And as I watched it, I went, yeah, deep down, I do want to be a drummer. <laughs> and I knew he was right. Third, said Ludo, iPhone apps are cool. Fair enough. Good point. Yep, they are. Uh, now, all of this actually took several weeks for Ludo to come up with this list. <laughs> but then Ludo hit it. Ludo hit on the uber cool. In fact, it was so cool that I couldn't put it in the outlines. Probably because, actually, I'm not cool enough. But are you ready? This is it. Aussie bum essence underwear. <laughs> These are not your regular undies. These undies release vitamins into your skin <laughs> while you wear them. How cool is that? <laughs> so I did some extra research, and they, they keep releasing vitamins for up to 15 washes. And then you can recharge them. <laughs> That's cool. Ludo, excellent work. <laughs> excellent work. Now, the point of all this, I needed a heading. See, a lot of work goes into Ancon Talks. There was weeks of research just to get the very first heading. The point basically is spirituality, represented here by Kabbalah bracelets, made famous by Madonna and a host of other LA types. Spirituality is in. Spirituality might not be yet as cool as Aussie bum essence undies, but it is enjoying a resurgence in our culture. You see it in a number of places. I was sitting in a cafe the other day. There's ads for yoga on the table, there's crystals for sale in the cabinet, and there's meditation classes being advertised on the wall. Spirituality's back in. You see it in the celebrity set, like Madonna. These are people who embrace Kabbalah bracelets or Scientology or whatever the latest sort of new age philosophy is. 
I wonder sometimes why. Is it just so that they've got something to talk about when they go on Oprah? But then reading a little bit more, I thought, no, it seems to be, for some of them, there seems to be some sort of post-materialist reaction. You know, I'm so rich, I've got everything else, but I still don't have satisfaction. So now I'm turning to the spiritual realm to find some more satisfying meaning and happiness. That certainly seems to be Madonna's experience. Let me read to you what she says. I went down the road of be all you can be, realise your dreams. And I'm telling you that fame and fortune are not what they're cracked up to be. Every person on the planet is living in a kind of bubble, trapped into programmed thinking that we're all expected to have certain amount of material things to be perceived as a worthwhile human being. I've found, she says, a way of life now that I'd like to share. Despite the illusions I've been a slave to all my life, I feel a tremendous amount of hope for a life of fulfilment and happiness. It's worth noting what Madonna claims here for her chosen spirituality. Freedom, truth, fulfilment, happiness, hope found through the spiritual and embraced with evangelistic zeal. It sounds a lot like what Christians claim for their faith in Jesus Christ, actually. So how do you know which spirituality is the right one, if any? Well, that's a question we're going to come back to tonight. But another area in which you see a resurgence of spirituality is what I've called pop culture spirituality. Increasingly, mainstream culture, there's an interest in magic, spirits, occult, think Harry Potter, though these days that's so 2005. So you'd have to think Edward and Bella, really, in Twilight. Now we're into vampires and werewolves. But what you've come to is an explicitly Christian conference. Our focus isn't actually on spirituality in general, though we're going to keep an eye on that throughout. Our particular focus is on the Christian understanding of spirituality. Or more properly, it's not spirituality with a little s, but spirituality with a capital S and a hyphen after the spirit bit. I've got it in my notes, it's hard for me to say that all the time, but that is what we're focusing on is the spirit with a capital S, the spirit of the one true God, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see as we delve into the Christian understanding of the spirit of God is that unlike celebrity spirituality where it's just an optional accessory and unlike pop culture spirituality where it's a matter of personal taste, when it comes to the Spirit's place in Christianity and in being Christian, the Spirit is absolutely essential. It's not an optional extra. Let me point out to you in your book there a few quotes from some well-respected Christian theologians. They're on your page. Gordon Fee puts it like this. The Spirit's major role lies with His being the essential element of the whole of Christian life from beginning to end. Or John Stott, it would be impossible to be a Christian, let alone to live and grow as a Christian, without the ministry of the gracious Spirit of God. All we have and are as Christians, we owe to Him. That's a pretty big call, isn't it? Without the work of the Spirit, you don't even make it onto the Christian team, let alone to first base. Jim Packer fills it out. The Christian's life, in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So even if you don't realise it, God's Spirit is intimately involved in every aspect of your Christian life. Not just involved, but actually essential to initiating every loving act, every prayer you pray, every gracious word you speak is the work of the Spirit of God in you. And in another book, Jim, Kappa, uh, Jim Packer writes with his mate Al Stibbs, he says, the gift of the Spirit to indwell God's people, corporately and individually, is the supreme and crowning blessing held forth in the gospel. Now, I don't know what you would say is the greatest thing about being a Christian. 
I've heard lots of people give their Christian testimonies. It's always incredibly encouraging and um, uplifting. And often you'll hear things like, oh, it's so great to know your sins are forgiven, or it's so great to know that I've got eternal life, or that I can be part of the Christian community. Occasionally you'd hear, oh, it's great to have a sure hope for the future, or to know that God's working out everything for my best. They're all great and true and right. They're wonderful gifts of God held out to all who put their trust in Jesus. But what Packer and Stibbs are saying here is that the supreme and the crowning blessing held out in the Christian gospel is the gift of God's Spirit to you. The gift of true spirituality. That's what God offers in Jesus. And they're right. It is the crown, crowning blessing held forth in the gospel. But we'll have to wait a bit later in a week to flesh that out. So God's Spirit, at least according to these Christian writers, is absolutely essential. But you might have come along this week, even as a Christian, knowing that we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and you've got a whole head full of questions. Well, you're not alone. In Christian circles today, even though everyone recognises the Spirit is essential, there's a heck of a lot of confusion. Duncan mentioned some of the questions before. Should I pray to the Spirit? How do I know that I have the Spirit? What experience of the Spirit should I have as a Christian? How do I know if I've accidentally blasphemed the, the Spirit, which is the one sin that Jesus said you can never be forgiven for? What does it mean to quench the Spirit or to grieve the Spirit or to be filled with the Spirit? What about spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare? Why do some churches seem to have miracles and prophecy and tongues and others don't? I was at a conference for people in full-time Christian ministry last year. Mark Driscoll was the invited speaker. Mark's an American so-called reform charismatic from Seattle. He was addressing a large bunch of mainly conservative Sydney evangelicals and he famously said, you guys are afraid of the Spirit. Now that's quite a charge, actually. Are we, am I, afraid of the Spirit? Am I afraid of what the Spirit might do? The same Holy Spirit who's absolutely essential for me to be and stay a Christian to be afraid of that spirit, be afraid of him, that would be a tragic state to be in, wouldn't it? And writing on the same theme, Sam Storms thinks that this is a critical issue for Christians today. He says, it is a critical and urgent necessity for all Christians of every theological and denominational stripe to wrestle with the divorce that has occurred between word and spirit. So there's a whole heap of confusion, a whole truckload of questions, and this week we're going to turn our attention to God's Word and get some answers. But as my last sort of point of orientation, I want to return to where I started. What we're doing this week is so much more than an intellectual exercise. We're, yes, we have our questions and our confusions, but this week is not actually just about getting answers. This week is actually about being transformed by God through His Spirit. We don't want to merely talk about the Spirit. We want to be reshaped, remade, renewed by His Spirit because that is who the Spirit is. He is God's transforming and powerful presence. So you can see in your book there, John Stott wrote these words 45 years ago, but they're still so true. He says, Surely all of us who say we belong to the Lord Jesus whatever our particular persuasion may be, and he means there whatever Christian group we might belong to, all of us who say we belong to the Lord Jesus must be oppressed at times by our personal failures in Christian life and Christian ministry. We're conscious that we fall short of the standards of Christ, of the experience of the first Christians and of the plain promises of God in his word. We are thankful indeed for what God has done and is doing and we do not want to denigrate his grace by minimising it. But we hunger and thirst for more. We also long for true revival and altogether supernatural visitation of the Holy Spirit in the church, bringing depth as well as growth. And meanwhile we yearn for a deeper, richer, fuller experience of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is that you? I say amen to that. We long for a greater experience of God. 
We long to see God's renewing power at work in our own lives and in the lives of our churches and in the EU at Sydney Uni. I hope we long to see revival, not that just ones and twos, but thousands would actually come to Jesus and be saved on our campus and in our city. So here's a little question for you, given what I've just said. Is all this talk about the Spirit sort of wasting our time, when really what we want is the Spirit to act with power? Well, the answer is no, actually, not at all. Jim Packer urges us on here. He says, Understanding the Holy Spirit is a crucial task for Christian theology at all times, for where the Spirit's ministry is studied, that's us, it will also be sought after. And where it is sought after, spiritual vitality will result. See, we're not dealing with an esoteric, intellectually austere, isolated topic of Christian theology. We are seeking to know the dynamic, life-giving, powerful presence of God himself, who is the Spirit. And under the power of God, that will not leave us this week unmoved. That will not leave us this week unchanged. And that's what we're praying for. That's what I've been praying for. That's what many of us have been praying for that we would not be unchanged. Well, there's two issues we need to get on top of if we're going to grasp what God has to say in the Christian Scriptures about His Spirit. The first is the language used for the Spirit, and the second is the wider context or perspective in which that language about the Spirit occurs. So this is, in some ways, the rest of this talk is just trying to set some important basic things in place on which we'll build the rest of the week. So first, Spirit language. Spirit is a very tricky word. Even in English, the word spirit, according to my concise Oxford dictionary that I got one year for Christmas, a very exciting present. Um, I was actually very excited to get it, but anyway. According to my concise Oxford, there are six different meanings of the word spirit in English. So when I use the word spirit in a sentence, it's the context that clues you in to what I'm actually talking about. So, for example, when I say... My spirits are high. Do I mean I'm feeling very happy? Um, this was a shot of me as I was... I took this while I was preparing the talk. And I, I don't normally look like that when I'm preparing the talk. I actually normally look like that. But we'll stick with that one. Do I mean that I'm just happy when I say my spirits are high? Do I mean that I keep my whiskey and port on a high shelf? My spirits are high. Or do I mean that my ghosts have been tripping out on drugs? <laughs> my spirits are high. It's only context that will tell you. Mm. It's the same with the words for spirit in the Bible, right? The Hebrew and Greek words that are translated as spirit in our English Bibles. The Old Testament, written largely in Hebrew. Uh, New Testament, written, written in Greek. When you see spirit in the Christian Old Testament, the Hebrew word that it translates is ruach. And now, I'm no expert at Hebrew pronunciation, but you've got to get a good guttural going. Ruach. Have a go at that. Ruach. The Hebrew scholars will correct me later. I don't care. Um, Hebrew ruach has a number of different meanings. And I've tried to lay it out there for you in the diagram on the page. The most basic meaning of ruach is wind. That is just straight wind. But from that very specific physical meaning, ruach then gets used metaphorically for things that are ephemeral or empty, things that are valueless or worthless, like the wind. At the same time, Ruach has this idea of moving air, and that's used to describe breath. And some say it might actually be onomatopoeic at that point, you know, Ruach. You actually, it's a very breathy word, right? So Ruach can mean respiration, it can mean the act of breathing, 
which is then linked to staying alive, staying, physical life. And then again, that physical meaning gets metaphoric use in terms of power. Having life, having ruach, means one has power. But it also develops metaphorically from the idea of breath and respiration in a different direction, where it comes to stand for your inner being, your internal immaterial consciousness, whether your mood or your character or your attitudes. It's your ruach, that's that which comes from inside, your character. And finally, this idea of the immaterial, but which is still very real, gets extended further and ruach is then used to describe the things that are totally immaterial. Instead of flesh and bones, all they have is ruach. And we're talking here of metaphysical supernatural beings. That gives you some idea of the, of the range of meanings of this word ruach. Now the reason this is important is because whenever you see the word spirit in an Old Testament text, you need to be aware that translators have made a decision there for you. They've taken the word ruach, looked at the semantic range of the word, looked at the immediate context and gone, yeah, which English word will we use? Maybe it should be spirit, maybe it should be wind, maybe it should be power, maybe it should be life. Only the context will tell you. So I've listed a whole lot of passages there on your outline. Instead of translating ruach, I've just left it as ruach so you can play translator and try and work out which is the right meaning. Now we're just going to look at a few of them. Have a look at number one from Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a ruach blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Not too hard, right? This is a real, starting with a really easy one. The writer means wind, right? He's just talking about a wind. God made a wind blow so the floodwaters would go down. Jump down to number four. If God should take back his ruach to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together and all mortals return to dust. Now here's where it's actually helpful to have the full picture of ruach. Just about every English Bible that I looked up translated ruach here as spirit which means the verse seems to say that it's God's spirit that gives you physical life. But the way Hebrew poetry works is that you tend to say the same idea twice, just in a different way. You see it in the second half of those verses. He says, all flesh would perish together, and that's paralleled with all mortals return to dust. Same idea, just said twice differently. And the same goes for the first half of the verse. If God should take back his ruach to himself and gather to himself his breath. Breath there is a different word, it's not a ruach word. Now because of the parallelism, I think it would probably be better to take ruach there as breath. But our English translators don't like that because then you'd have the same word breath there twice in the sentence and that doesn't read well, so they've put in spirit. But I think that's actually a bit misleading. The verse is actually picking up on Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, where God creates man out of the dust of the ground and, quote, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, using that same breath word as here. So I don't think this verse is actually saying we have physical life because God's spirit is in us. What it is saying is that we have the life-giving and life-sustaining breath of God in us, which I think is probably a metaphor for his power, his, his, his life-giving power in us. His breath, his ruach. Or jump down to number eight. This is a verse that I used to have written up above my desk in English. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to read it in Hebrew. Better a patient person than a warrior, those who rule their ruach, than those who take a city. Here we have individuals and their ruach their internal disposition or mood or character. We talk about it as a person's spirit, small s, spirit. I find this verse particularly personally challenging, to be a person who is patient, who rules over my own ruach. But the other reason I love this verse is it is so against the wisdom of the world. 
Better a patient person than a warrior. One who can rule their own ruach than one who can take a city. Well, there's not many people in the world who think like that. But this is God's values here in the Scriptures. The next passage, number nine, uses ruach again for the human spirit with a small s spirit. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is my resting place? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in Ruach, who trembles at my word. Here's another truth that our world misses again and again. The one true God who made all things and owns all things, he frankly isn't interested in how impressive we are or what we think we might be able to offer to him. He made a lot of us. He owns all of us. Yet the amazing truth of God revealed here in the Bible is that he doesn't stay aloof from us, even though we can do nothing for him. Rather, he actually turns to who? He turns to the humble and contrite in Ruach. Those who are humble and contrite in their internal spirit, their disposition. And at the end of the verse, it gives a very specific shape. Who tremble at his word. And we're about to head off into a week engaging with God in his word. Are you prepared to humble yourself before him this week? Are you prepared to tremble at his word? To read and hear these words from the scriptures not merely as human ideas or thoughts, but as they are, the living and enduring words of God. Because this is the one to whom God will look, to those who, humble, who are humble and contrite in Ruach, who will actually humble themselves and tremble at his word. That's who God looks at. That's who he turns to in compassion and mercy. And finally, then we come to Ruach, where it refers to the metaphysical, what we call the spirit world. Jump down to number 11. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Ruach, says the Lord of hosts. And God's Ruach here isn't his breath or wind or his internal disposition or even his power. It's more than that. It's by his powerful personal presence, his capital S spirit, which is not physical, it's not material, but it is very real. And the last example from the Old Testament there is the trickiest. It also happens to be the first time the Ruach's ever used in the Bible. It comes in the second verse of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Passage number 12, I'll read from verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. Well, you're now experts in Ruach translation, right? You can have a crack at this one. To what is Ruach referring here? Out of the whole sort of set of choices, what is it? The Ruach of God was hovering over the waters of creation. What are you going to pick? Think about it. Talk to the person next to you. You've got seven seconds. Okay, is it the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? All the English translations I looked at, every single one bar one, had the Spirit of God. I'm not actually convinced it's best, but who am I? But anyway, could it be the wind of God was blowing over the waters? There's one English translation that goes that way that I could find. I actually wonder whether it's the breath of God might be best. Reason being that in the next verse, verse 3, it starts, and God said, which is central to the whole Christian understanding of creation. God speaks the universe into being. He creates by his word, and word comes on breath, on ruach. So I wonder if the picture is of the breath of God hovering, waiting, 
over the formless, chaotic deep, waiting for the decisive, creative word of God that will bring order and form to what is chaotic and formless. And when you get to the New Testament, well, there's a different word with which we need to come to grips. Behind the word spirit in the New Testament is the Greek word pneuma. Now, pneuma has the same basic meanings as ruach, namely a movement of air. It's the word from which we get lots and lots of different English words. And here's some examples to try and connect with your area of university study. Lots of pneuma words. So, for instance, for the engineers, we have pneumatic drills. They're very exciting. <laughs> You've never used one if you're not excited by it. But anyway, pneumatic drills. Uh, there's also, sort of for the uh, botanists, there's pneumatophores. Who actually knows what a pneumatophore is? See? I didn't make this up. People know this stuff. A pneumatophore in botany is an aerial root of a mangrove for gas exchange, but it also in zoology has another meaning. In zoology, <laughs> in zoology it's the gas-filled float of some colonial cholenterates. Um, that is, it's the bit, the bubble bit that you stamp on on a blue bottle and make it go pop. That's the air bit, right? It's filled with air, hence pneuma. Um, for the med students, there's um, a diseased pneumothorax, which is uh, when you get air or gas in the cavity between your lung and the chest wall that then makes your lung collapse. That doesn't sound good. Um, then just for the English students, there is this particular word. <laughs> Pneumono-ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis, which just happens to be the ninth longest word in the English language. And it starts with pneuma. Um, it's also the longest word listed in the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm not going to tell you what it means, but you can buy a T-shirt with the word written on it. <laughs> and then, of course, there is also pneumatology, which is the technical theological word for what we're doing this week, studying the spirit, the study of the spirit. Now, like ruach, pneuma can mean wind or a person's internal disposition or a metaphysical supernatural being. Context has to be your guide again. We'll just look at one example there, number 13. Jesus says to Nicodemus, The pneuma blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus if he wants to be born again, he has to be born ultimately from the Spirit, capital S, from the pneuma. But Jesus uses the multiplicity of meanings to draw an analogy between the pneuma wind, because you can see the effects of the wind, you can feel it even, but where it's come from and where it's going to go next, it's inexplicable, it's unpredictable. And Jesus says, so it is with those who are born of the pneuma, the Spirit. You experience it, you see it. So you can't see it, but you know it's come. You know, but you don't know where it's going to go next. It's in a, at a level unpredictable. Well, that's it. That's bringing you up to speed on spirit, your language. Let's going to take. A, I'm going to give you a chance to stretch your legs for just a, two minutes or so, and then we'll come back and we'll finish off with spiritual perspective. Okay, let's get underway. Just out of interest, I'd like to know how many cool people are here. Who, who actually can play the drums? Okay, let's try another one. Who's got an iPhone? Yeah. Who studies microeconomics? Yeah, okay. 
let's talk about spiritual perspective. We're going to talk a lot about the spirit this week, which is really exciting. And I need to help you understand that there is, within the Bible, there is a bigger, very exciting story to tell in which the spirit plays a key role. So what I'm going to just try to do the, sort of this last part of this talk is just try to set that up for us. And we're going to really sort of come back to this again and again in the course of the week. Uh, UNICEF, UNICEF estimates that 25,000 children die each day from poverty. 25,000 children a day. Uh, that means since we arrived here this morning that approximately 2,000 children have died because of poverty this morning. I've taken children's funerals. They are terrible. The grief for the whole family. Don't ever think that just because a family is in poverty, they love their children less. 25,000 children a day. When we talk about pain and suffering in the world, it's personal. Whether that be sickness, loneliness, abuse, strained relationships, injustice, crumpled hopes, death and pain in our own families, in our own lives. And if your heart is anything like mine, then it cries out, this is not how it should be. Why can't there be satisfaction? Why can't there be freedom and justice and peace? Why does there need to be death and pain and loneliness and hurt and destruction? Our hearts long for something better. We love what's good in the world. We don't want to be taken somewhere completely alien, completely different, but, but we long for a restored experience, surely, a fulfilled experience, an unmarred experience of life. And once the filter is turned off and the blinkers are lifted and we see reality in all of its goodness and its grossness, in its glory and its sometimes gruesomeness, then we all react in different ways to that reality. The most common reaction, I reckon, is, is frankly to quickly turn the filter back on and pull the blinkers back down and ram your head as fast as you can into the sand. Just block it out. Better feigned ignorance than uncomfortable reality. Of course, that's going to come back and bite you. You can try to not look at reality, to shut it out, but you actually live in the real world. Reality will find you. As one writer put it, if you haven't suffered yet, then you just haven't lived long enough. That's not morbidity. That's just real. Wake up and smell the roses because they'll probably be wilted by the end of the week. But that's all just so uncomfortable, we often just prefer to stick our heads back in the sand, pretend it's all good, but it's just that, it's just pretending. Another response when confronted with reality is the blame it on the atoms approach. That is, yep, life is a world of pain. Welcome to reality. Your only hope is to escape this material, physical existence. That's the view of Hinduism. The problem there is, is with the material creation. Blame it on the atoms that have entrapped the real you in this pain-filled material prison. And the answer in Hinduism, through the cycle of birth, death and rebirth, is ultimately to escape your entrapment in this endless cycle of physical reincarnation and merge with, the, with ultimate reality, with the ultimate soul. Like a spark returning to the flame or like a drop of water into the ocean. It's a very negative view of creation, isn't it? Of this world. It doesn't say this world is good. 
This world, it says, is the problem. It's your prison. And maybe a more common approach in our culture when the filter is off and we see reality as it is, is just to get depressed. Yep, life is pain. I've had my head in the sand for as long as I can and then reality yanked it back out and if I don't just suck it up and get on with it, it's going to crush me. I think we are a society, a day and an age in which there is very little hope going around anymore. I don't think when faced with a darker side to reality that people have a concrete hope, a sure thing that they can look forward to. The best they've got, and I've taken so many funerals, is wishful thinking. What's your response to our marred experience? How do you come to grips intellectually with it? And more significantly, how do you process it? How do you deal with it personally? When the half side of reality touches you or those close to you, what do you, how do you do with that? See, the Christian scriptures don't shy away from reality in its glory and its grossness. And when we say, life ought not to be like it is, God says, you're exactly right. Life should not be like this. God actually affirms the cries of our hearts and the longing of our lives. He doesn't just affirm them, he actually helps us understand why life is as it is now and then he gives us hope. So the opening chapters of the Bible, there in Genesis 1 and 2, paint a picture of God's intention for his creation, this world, including us. Most of you are probably familiar with the story, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. If not, you can plenty of time this week to read it. Here is God's intention in these opening chapters of the Bible. God's purpose for his creatures, life as he wants it to be. Two things you notice from it, two things. First of all, life in Eden, in Genesis 2, is life lived in the very presence of God. Life in the very presence of God. The picture is of God walking through the garden in which he's placed Adam and Eve to live and work. They live in his presence, which means that they, they're living with an abundance of his provision his protection, they're his people. But the second thing you notice is life in God's presence in Eden is eternal. It never ends. There's no human death in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve have free and direct access to the tree of life which provides immortality. Eternal life in the direct presence of God, enjoying all the fruits of his abundant provision, that's what life is meant to be like for you and me, according to God. And my heart cries out, yep, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want. Life without the mess, life perfected. And God says, of course you want it. That's what I've created you for. Your longing and your desire to be rid of this mad experience are exactly right. But what the opening chapters of Genesis also help us understand is why our present experience is not like that. It gives us an insight into our present reality. So Genesis 3 describes how Adam and Eve rejected God's instructions about how to live in the garden. God had said, I've provided you with all these trees for food, but by the way, stay away from that particular one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve rejected that instruction, which had been given for their good. They ate of the tree. And in rejecting God's instruction, they actually were rejecting God and his place in their life. That is, they were, they were refusing God's right to be God, to call the shots at that point. You won't be our God, was their decision. We're, we're not taking our instruction manual on how to live from you. And that's what the Bible identifies as sin. It's a lived-out opposition to the one true God and his purposes and will for us. Now, when you think about it, it's very easy to say, Adam and Eve, they were stupid. They were so, so stupid. Every tree in the garden, just stay away from that one. They were so dumb. And you're right, there is a perversity there. There is a bewildering sort of stubbornness that really is stupid to say, well, no, I'm going to eat of that one. 
And yet the Bible says that's actually all of our condition. All of us follow in their footsteps. The bizarre, unreasonable, bewildering stupidity of rejecting the good God who made us and has given us every good thing, that's me and that's you. Sin is our sickness. It's our deep depravity. It's our bizarre, unflinching bias. The Apostle John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. Well, Apostle Paul, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is our sickness. And Genesis 3 makes clear the consequences of that sin. As a result of Adam and Eve's rejection of God, they're ejected from the garden, cut off from the direct presence of God. Which also means then they're cut off from the abundance of provision that they had within the garden. God loves them, so God still provides for them gracious provision, but now it's a life of toil and pain. Life is marred outside the garden. And being ejected from the garden also meant being cut off from the tree of life, the source of immortality. So it actually brings the ultimate marring of life, that is, it brings death. So the consequences of sin is death and being cut off from God's presence. Or, if you like, death and God's absence. You can see it in your diagram on your page. We've moved from life in God's presence to death and God's absence, and all because of sin. That's the Bible's insight into our present reality. Now, the whole rest of the Bible is the record of what God has done, is doing, and will still do to alter that state of affairs. See, God's solution isn't, right, just chuck it all out and start again. His solution isn't, right, let's rescue them out of the material world and take us to a non-physical sort of heaven place. God's original creation was good, very good, we're told. Out of his great love and compassion, God's plan is to recover his purposes for his creatures that he's made and loved. He wants to recover his original purposes, bring us back to a state where we are living in the presence and power of God. That's God's plan for his creatures. It's a big plan. He's a big God. He made us, loved us, and wants to restore you to life in his presence. So we have reason for hope. Now remember from Genesis 3, the root problem is sin, right? The movement from life in God's presence to death in God's absence is all because of sin. The problem isn't in the atoms, it's in our attitude. It's not in the stuff of nature, it's the fact we say get stuffed to God. So in order to restore his good purposes for us, God needs to fix the sin problem. And that's what God promises to do. And that's where the Spirit is key. So have a look on your page there, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Listen to what God says here to his people. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Here's a picture, see, of restored life. Instead of ignoring God's instructions on life, like Adam and Eve at Eden, God's going to effect a heart transplant and give his people a new heart. He's going to put his own spirit, capital S, in them so that they do follow his way, so that they don't go like Adam and Eve did. No more sin. That's what this passage is talking about. God's people will sin no more. And God's spirit working in the heart of God's people is the key. And it's not just the work of God's spirit, though, that is at the centre of his recovery for God's purposes for creation. What God's planning is not just 
an isolated heart transplant into every person. God's plan is even bigger than that. It's a restored ordering of the whole of creation. The phrase used by the Bible to capture that is God's going to bring about the kingdom of God. He's going to reintroduce his rule over creation so that all things happen as he intends them to happen. And central to bringing in this renewed state of affairs is that there will be a king in this kingdom, a Messiah, an anointed one, through whom God will establish the kingdom. So if you read on from Ezekiel 36 into chapter 37, God speaks of this promise there on your page. God says, They shall never again defile themselves with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions or sins. I will save them from all the apostasies into which they have fallen, and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Right, that's the Eden. That's looking back to sort of what we lost at Eden. They will be my people, I will be their God. Then notice what God says next. My servant David will be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. Now, David was a king who'd been dead a long time when this was written. What God means is that there's going to be a new David, a new king, like the great King David of old, who will bring in God's kingdom. And in fact, in a moment we'll see this new David is going to be far greater than the old one. Let me read on. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. They shall live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, in which your ancestors lived. They and their children, their children's children, shall live there forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will bless them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them. Sanctuary just means that's his, pre his presence, what was lost in Eden. I will set my sanctuary among them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the point is, God is not blind or uncaring or too weak to do something about our present marred experience. God has a plan to recover what we lost through our sin. And central to that plan is a spiritual heart transplant and the coming of his Messiah, the new King David, through whom God will establish this new permanent state of affairs. There is hope for humanity here. There is hope for our world. It's not in escape. God is doing something in the very stuff of this world, in human hearts, in yours and mine, by his Ruach, by his pneuma, by his spirit, and in the person and rule of his Messiah, his chosen king in his kingdom. This is the big, glorious story to tell. From our present marred experience, through a deep insight into the reality of why life is like that, to glorious hope that God is doing something by his spirit and in the person of his Messiah. This week should be an immense encouragement to you. God wants you to be deeply encouraged by these things. That's why he's revealed them to us. So that you and in fact all his creatures can have a sure hope. It's going to be very exciting this week to look at this. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer now. And I'm going to start my prayer by using the first verse of the old hymn that's printed on your page. And then we're going to get ready to go to lunch. Let's pray. Creator Spirit, by whose aid the world's foundations first were laid, Come visit every waiting mind. Come pour your joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow, please set us free and make us your temples worthy of thee.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you know the state of our world and the state of our hearts. Thank you that knowing the corruption in the world and the rebellion of our hearts, out of your great unfailing love, you still had a plan to fulfill your purposes in us and the world through your Messiah and your Spirit. Father, as we delve deeper into these truths that you've revealed to us this week, fill us, please, with a sure hope, with enduring faith and with surpassing joy. In Jesus' name and the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.